listening to the DD Geopolitics podcast. We are joined by a returning guest we are very honored to have back, Mr. Che Bose, a journalist for RT, are joined by Chebu and also by Lydia. Welcome all. Hey, great to be here. Good morning. We are very happy to have you and of course we are very happy to be back. So today we will be talking about a few things. Some recent developments have happened, in particular one which affected our guest, and that is actually quite momentous. And for those of us who watch politics, can't help but fill one with envy to have such a great privilege. Mr. Bose, along with Grey Zone's Max Blumenthal, had the privilege and honor of addressing the UN Security Council on the 29th of June. You can actually find this meeting of the Security Council on the UN Press's website, and you can go and watch it, and we would all encourage you to do that. And also, more recently, just this past week, NATO had its much-touted, much-vaunted, much-celebrated, much-anticipated Vilnius Summit that instead we got a what will soon be a very, very famous picture of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky standing on stage, bearded, tongue slightly out of his mouth, looking very bitter. So, a picture is worth a thousand words, they say, often very trite. A picture is often just a picture, but this picture was something exceptional. But we'll be talking about all of that, and you'll be getting to hear about all of that. So, Mr. Bose, could you tell us how you came to have such a great honor of actually being able to address the UN Security Council and in such a venue actually get to set out some facts to anybody who was watching and listening. Mm, yeah, well, of course, um, it was a great privilege, even though, you know, the UN has really become quite a talking shop. Like you say, the key thing here was that it was an opportunity to express some reality in a forum where you know they had to listen to us and in conjunction with max we were asked by the russian delegation uh, to do a briefing and so something that happens quite uh, often i think in the un they ask people who they believe have experience and something to offer i suppose i think uh, any member of the security council can do that uh, max i was obviously as a journalist with exceptional uh, experience and uh, knowledge of the american political ecosystem, having grown up in it, uh, uh, running the grey zone, which is really probably, in my view, one of the foremost uh, non-aligned, non-client media outlets in the United States, possibly in the world, and Max is the engine of that, so it was super to sit uh, and be with Max. We didn't collaborate at all prior to this because we decided that we would not do that, so so that was also interesting. Yeah, I was asked by Dmitry Polyansky, who's the basically the second uh, the second in command, if you like, of the UN delegation from Russia. He asked me, would I be interested in doing a briefing on uh, basically the proliferation of weapons and small arms into Ukraine? And why did he ask me? I suppose it's because I have a bit of a background there. I have a modest military background. 
Uh, I spent some time in the Irish Army in the Irish Army Medical Corps. And post that, I did, uh, I had licenses in uh, firearms appraisal. And, you know, I, I had a lot of time and experience with small arms and ammunition. And I also did a, a master's degree uh, in strategic studies and uh, specializing in, you know, war, uh, the, the politics of war, the geostrategic realities of war uh, as well. So I kind of have some badges where I could express an interest or an opinion about this, basically this saturation of Ukraine in, in weapons. Uh, so that's really why they asked me to, to come along and give the briefing. Of course, I, I imagine they asked me because I have a dissenting view on how this war uh, began, who who began it, who created the conditions, built the scaffold which it's blazing on, and who's stoking it uh, today. That's so I, I'd imagine they uh, asked me because they believe my views would align with theirs on, on what's really behind this proxy war in Ukraine. We watched your presentation with great interest, and I think we would like to definitely touch upon some areas of expertise that you demonstrated, I think, very, very powerfully. So often the focus recently has been on the cluster munitions that have been supplied by the United States, but actually you brought up an issue that is not talked about so much, but that we think is very well worth bringing up, namely all the small arms weapons that have been distributed, not just to Ukraine, but throughout Ukraine by the Ukrainian government. Could you give us, could you tell our listeners why that's so important and why that could potentially be so devastating for the country, even if the war were to stop now? Sure. Well, I mean, shockingly, the Ukrainian government, or lack of government, because in my view, no competent government would do these types of things. They would not saturate. I mean, prior to the Russian military intervention, which I like to call the, the latest chapter in a conflict which began with the, it probably began back in the, in the late 1940s after the Second World War, when uh, the nation CIA began to uh, fund and arm uh, ultra-nationalists like Bandera, Shukhevich uh, in, uh, you know, eastern or western Ukraine. Uh, but the, the culmination of that, I suppose, was the, uh, was Newland and Pyatt's uh, engineered and uh, designed coup in 2014, which led to essentially the arming and empowerment of uh, disproportionately powerful uh, far-right groups, uh, people like uh, Oleg Tianibok and various others, the establishment and the growth of Idar, Tornado, Azov, uh, which prosecu prosecuted a very brutal ethno-nationalist sort of uh, civil war in the wake of the uh, Odessa Union House siege. The people in the East very quickly saw what was coming. Russia went into... Uh, you know, uh, Crimea, of course, uh, which, of course, the West says it was an annexation of Crimea. And, uh, of course, you have to ask yourself, you know, was Crimea Russian before Nikita Khrushchev handed it as a present to the Ukrainian SSR in 1954? Uh, you know, so there's this, uh, you have to take all of this in the sort of Western perception of the good guy, bad guy, Star Wars narrative. So post that, of course, the conflict uh, erupted again, I suppose, uh, and in uh, 
February uh, 2022. And very soon afterwards, a panicked Ukrainian government began to basically dump hundreds of thousands of small arms weapons, millions of rounds of ammunition, you know, hundreds of thousands of grenades, uh, RPGs, RPG-7s, mines, anything basically that was in the country's uh, Soviet stores out onto the streets. And as I mentioned in my speech, on one occasion, uh, just outside Kiev, 18,000 uh, weapons were given out to any civilian that could carry them. There was no age checks. There were kids as young as uh, 13 given weapons, uh, I, I was informed. And this is all verified by Ukrainian media and Western media. Uh, so you had teenagers given uh, PKM uh, light machine guns with thousands of rounds of ammunition, uh, Makarov pistols, nine millimeter pistols, millions of rounds of ammunition, uh, SPD uh, sniper rifles, an immense amount of weaponry. One of the comparisons I made in my speech was, when the IRA, which I would be familiar with being Irish and having grown up in, in Ireland during the 1970s, during that war in the north, uh, when the IRA actually de decommissioned its weapons, and it was a general de Chastelin, who was a Canadian guy, I think, who was in charge of that, they only actually had about a 1,000 uh, uh, rifles, assault rifles, in their armory. Uh, and, you know, a, a couple of tons of Semtex, which is a plastic explosive, which would have been very useful for them in the kind of war they were uh, fighting. But regarding rifles and small arms and weapons, they had a relatively tiny amount. So, so the comparison I made was the IRA challenged the British state on the island of Ireland for 30 years, killed thousands of uh, British paramilitary police. Uh, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of British soldiers destroyed uh, uh, significant pieces of British infrastructure with a very small army. And considering the saturation of Ukraine, its porous borders with the rest of Europe, its abject corruption, which I went through in, in some detail as well with a State Department report into Ukraine's you know, endemic corruption uh, in a report that they had, the, the Americans actually commissioned in 2019, you can see where I was going with my argument that even in the event of a settlement, uh, four or five guys in the back of the bar can quickly access anti-aircraft missiles, they can access anti-armor missiles, they can launch a very um, succinct and lethal assault on a vehicle carrying a, a high-ranking official from one other side. So when you've got a society which is post-conflict and then it is saturated literally, you know, absolutely in these weapons, even in the terms of conflict, there are hundreds of thousands of weapons now lying in fields and ditches, unfortunately, alongside the corpses of uh, Ukrainian uh, young men and some Russian men as well. So there's a lot of weapons in the country. It takes one AK-47 to assassinate an official. It takes, you know, less than a quarter of a kilogram of Semtex uh, explosive. It takes one RPG rocket warhead to attach to a drone for a kid to fly into an aircraft. It takes one Stinger missile to bring down a uh, an airliner full of uh, people. So this was the point of my argument that this reckless, untraceable, untrackable flooding of Ukraine with weapons by the Ukrainian government, but more lately by the uh, NATO countries, who are energetically dumping their dysfunctional junk uh, from uh, their armies, their post-Soviet armies. Because remember, the, the Ukrainian army that was created by NATO post-2014 uh, 
was essentially an army that uh, was trained on Soviet weaponry. It wasn't really capable of using uh, Western weaponry because they didn't have any, but had a large stock of Soviet tanks from T-64s up to T-72s or T-80s. Its air defense system was basically the Soviet S-300 system, essentially. And that's all been destroyed now. So the only equipment that tanks these uh, these guys know how to use, the BMP, uh, they're all trained on the Soviet one. So the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Poland, all energetically have been dumping their uh, old stocks of Soviet equipment into Ukraine. It's being destroyed wholesale. But they're doing it on a very cynical basis. And I called it a moral at the UN. I said it's quite a moral that what has been portrayed in the media as uh, the countries helping Ukraine is basically them trading up by dumping uh, basically uh, third-rate equipment into Ukraine, which has been you know, basically vaporized by the Russian army. So what you have spelled out by using the benchmark of how armed or relatively speaking unarmed the IRA was, which is to say that just in Kiev alone, 18 times as many small arms rifles, that is to say just one element of small arms, along with their ammunition, were distributed in Kiev alone to say nothing else of elsewhere in no, the country. On one afternoon. On one afternoon. On one afternoon. So what do you think could possibly be an outcome from that post-war in terms of what that could unleash, even as I said, if the war were to stop where it is with the front lines where they are right now? Okay. Well, another analogy, another interesting comparison would be the uh, treaty that was signed in Ireland. And when the IRA basically, we had a revolution in 1916, which failed. It was uh, basically crushed by the British. They executed the leadership, and doing that, uh, they they turned their groundswell of anger toward the rebels into a groundswell of support for them, for this nationalism. So they executed the leaders, and then this war uh, of independence began, which was basically a guerrilla campaign by the remnants of the IRA that fought in the revolution against the British. They embarked on a very skillfully executed campaign of guerrilla warfare against the British, the British esque by sending paramilitary police and units like the Black and Trans into villages and towns in Ireland committing atrocities, which further accelerated the fighting. The, the one thing that the Irish side was desperate for them was weapons. But uh, as you can see, in, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of this, the, the British said, okay, let's have a treaty. There was a treaty signed, but the treaty led to a civil war in Ireland because some people wanted the whole island the deal of the treaty was that the Ulster counties, the, the Protestant counties of the North, would remain in the in the United Kingdom, and the Republic would be granted status within a, a sort of a, a British Union. So it was a step to towards full independence. It was very small stocks of arms that allowed a uh, dumped arms that had been dumped at the end of the uh, treaty, basically, to allow this civil war to escalate. And it was a brutal civil war, and it led to thousands of deaths. And it's an interesting analogy if, for example, there was a settlement tomorrow, if everything froze where it was, you could easily have groups on either side. I mean, I don't see Azov, uh, Tornado, IDAR, Right Sector, or any of these ultra-nationalist Ukrainian paramilitary groups, which remember now are 
have access to weapons, have had access to weapons, even if they're told to dump their arms, which in military parlance is to, to basically dump your weapons, uh, drop your weapons, uh, consign them into some central authority, even if they're asked to do that, uh, you know, 500 uh, weapons, some anti-armor, some uh, anti-aircraft, you can prosecute a, a war. We've seen recently in Russia how a uh, access to weapons and equipment can challenge the civil power. And we've seen very patently here in Russia how when you allow uh, arms, uh, armor and anti-aircraft uh, ca capability to be held outside of the remit of the state, how dangerous that can be for the exercising of civil power. And that's in an established, quite strong uh, uh, society here. So imagine what it would be like in Ukraine. Are you going to get agreement uh, from the same people whispered, whispered to Zelensky, uh, you know, uh, about Minsk. It was, I believe, it was the radical uh, right in Ukraine, which wields a very highly disproportionate uh, amount of power for its size, actually, uh, but does yield that, that they actually essentially threatened Zelensky uh, regarding Minsk, that the, there wasn't an inch of ground to be given to the Russian separatists, as they were called. Uh, so this was a small group influencing at a very high level. With the amount of weapons that are now in Ukraine, uh, there are innumerable groups now that can influence uh, violent, uh, what's the word, uh, disproportionate uh, power into decision-making. Combine it with endemic corruption, vast amounts of money, uh, I, I believe, and sources have told me that hundreds of millions of dollars in cash in US dollars have also circulated into Ukraine. This is how CIA fights its wars. We know that the CIA is basically operating the nerve center of the conflict on a sort of commissar level uh, politically. It's also interfacing with the far right. It's interfacing with Zelensky's regime. It's also carrying uh, the the nerve synapse uh, signals, if you like, throughout the whole system in Ukraine regarding signals, intelligence, etc. So there's a lot of money, there's a lot of corruption, and there's a shitload of weapons. And it's not necessarily a T-72 tank that could do the damage or a Su-25 fighter. It's not that type of stuff. That's very difficult to maintain, to fuel, and to, to move, what's easy to move is an AK-47, one of the most devastating weapons ever created, uh, uh, exceptionally uh, efficient uh, as a killing machine, and it, it can withstand incredible amounts of abuse. I fired the gun, I've seen it stripped down, dumped into mud and put back together, and it still fires. This is why it's a, a favored weapon of revolutionaries uh, and what some call terrorists, some call freedom fighters across the world. And there are literally innumerable hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these weapons uh, all over the place in Ukraine. Now. And there are tens of millions of rounds of ammunition for it. And again, these guns were designed to survive lying out in the open for two or three years and still being able to fire, as is the ammunition. Soviet equipment was designed to, to work uh, and Western equipment was designed to be sold uh, on other markets, essentially. That's the sort of a maximum you could kind of work by. So it's very difficult to sterilize these weapons out of Ukrainian society now. And you've got an incredibly unstable political situation, an incredibly corrupt country. Uh, and, of course, then you've got the proliferation of these weapons beyond Ukraine's borders. We had Benjamin Netanyahu, not somebody I'd be a big fan of, of course, uh, recently saying that, the reason he wasn't sending weapons to Ukraine was because he 
his intelligence people told him that uh, you know stingers and uh, javelin anti-armor missiles have been seen circulating among the enemies of Israel on its borders. So if that's not uh, a validation of my point, I don't know what is. A very, very good point, I would say. Another thing that I at least was struck by watching your presentation and Max Blumenthal's presentation was how well you set out the facts and actually how well you set out how this narrative that's been very, very relentlessly spun in the West that this was an act of unprovoked Russian aggression. It's just an absolutely contextless, senseless invasion by the response that Sergei Rachenko gave to you and to Max Blumenthal, and first, not just in how dismissive he was, but also him starting to basically, at least as I would characterize it, say some slogans without any reference even to what you said or attempt to yeah. refute what you said. And just even in contrast to that, immediately after him came uh, the ambassador, and he actually mm. refuted some of the points that Rachenko had to say. Now, why do I set this all up that way? Which is that on the one side, you appear to be prepared for an argument and to deconstruct that argument, whereas Rachenko is a professional historian, but it was like you hadn't he was speaking as though you had said something else than what he'd said do you have any comment on that yeah well i mean my view and max's view and i've discussed it with max this in a very uh minor way and i i suppose some some other observers and some other chamber on the day they are of the view that when you go and the British ambassador, the uh, American ambassador, and all of their uh, sort of brutal uh, ambassadors who are led along by the note by the British and the Americans, that the reason they didn't engage with the laws is because the fact we lay out are irrefutable. All of the sources I used in my discussion, and this is very much, I did this on because everything I said was sourced from Western data, everything. Nothing was opinion-based. It was all from Western media, Western, from the New York Times, from the Guardian, and, and most importantly, from U.S. State Department, from Interpol, from Israeli sources. So, I mean, it's impossible for them to refute their own death. And this is something a very smart professor uh, told me a long time ago. Uh, you know, it, it, it becomes like garlic to a vampire. There was no way they were going to try to debate Max Arai, and, I, and this is no way me being, uh, you know, high-handed, aloof, or trying to big myself or Max up, but we're talking about facts. Rakenko was talking about opinions, and, and this is the basis on which this whole insane war is being prosecuted on opinions. There's no real interrogation of fact. Uh, there's an a la carte attitude to the morality of whether this war was... was uh, you know, uh, began on the 24th of February last year, or, or, or you know, what the background to it is. It's essentially a courtroom where the, uh, the victim uh, gets to appoint all of the evidence. The victim gets to say, you know, this happened. No one's allowed to query that evidence whatsoever. Uh, you know, it's like a body turning up with a thousand stab wounds, the head cut off, burn marks all over it, and the judge saying, this is the worst case of suicide I've ever seen. 
you know? So it, the, the forum by which they would actually debate us on facts or on evidence is anathema to them. It's absolutely terrifying. It's like garlic to a vampire. They would never dare to debate Max or I. Not because it's me. There's, there's much wiser people than me, and I would dare say Max Blumenthal scholars, who have long predicted this conflict, long pointed out the realities of what has caused it, what's perpetuating it. And everybody knows it, and even the dogs in the street know it. Interestingly, Max Blumenthal uh, or somebody on his team actually mentioned to me that they overheard the French, the French ambassador, you know, sort of queued up to land based us along with everybody else. They all rode in, except for the Chinese the, and some of the, the African countries with Max for our presentations. The rest of us queued up with their, uh, you know, unipolar drill speak uh, condemnation of us as, you know, paid stooges or whatever, you know, the usual drivel. But the French ambassador was overheard saying that he hadn't even listened to Max and I. He wasn't even in the chamber, but he did turn up to condemn us. He didn't even hear what we had to say. I offered to debate the Ukrainian ambassador, who Irish media approached afterwards and said, well, what do you make of what Mr. Bo said? He said, I don't want to hear anything from Mr. Bo. I don't want to know what he had to say. So I offered to debate him in any forum, in any country. I'd fly there anywhere. I don't think I'd probably make my way to Lvov at the moment, though I might not make uh, the return ticket. But... <laughs> I, I would. I suggested I would debate him in any forum, and of course, there's never a response to that. And I've offered that debate to anybody. I said, without any notes, I'll sit in the forum. You can ask the questions. You can have a panel of people, and we will debate this uh, mano a mano. But they consistently reject that opportunity. Now, I don't know what that tells the guys listening to this, but it suggests to me that everything I've said is, uh, you know, cannot be challenged because its its basis is their data. Now, of course, the West has decided to memory hole all of its views about Ukraine, all of the realities about uh, the UN's views on the proliferation of weapons, all of the realities of Interpol's views on the proliferation of weapons, and all of the realities now on the use of cluster munitions, uh, where the United States banned their use, essentially, a de facto ban since 2016. But now... It's decided that it's morally prudent to further saturate the, the earth of their ally with the most heinous and malicious weapons, these little bomblets uh, uh, known to mankind. That's the reason they've been banned, is that they're, they're absolutely a very pernicious, nasty weapon. So, again, it's an a la carte attitude now to morality, and there's no crime unforgivable. There's no uh, cynicism, and there's no... A rule that can't be erased and rewritten when it comes to fighting your proxy, be it Russia and soon to be China. So this is the reality, and they know it in the chamber, but it's a question of the emperor's clothes. As soon as somebody actually admits this thing is, uh, you know, it's essentially a race to the bottom. A cynical idea to destabilize Russia has now become a, a, a monstrous uh, uh, sort of vacuum, which is demilitarizing Europe. I mean, America would not be sending cluster bombs that had in storage for maybe 30 years to Ukraine. It just would not be doing that uh, if it had any weapons left to send. And I, I wrote a small post on Twitter, actually, in response to one of your, your tweets, guys. And I said, these cluster munitions are essentially not very effective against fixed positions. They're not very effective against buildings or armor. 
they're kind of outdated. They are very dangerous for farmers and school kids in decades to come, just ask the Cambodians and the Vietnamese. But this is a real sign of desperation. Many NATO countries have banned them. The British even actually came out and said, look, we don't think this is a great idea. There's serious consternation and concern about it. But it's also in some ways, if you look at it, it's a also a signal that they don't really believe that they're going to recover the territory that Russia currently has, or maybe the territory that may be uh, you know, further gained by Russia now, as Russia, I think, strategically looks at the reality that we'll probably have to push further to at least have a 60-kilometer buffer zone from, from the republics that have been absorbed into Russia uh, in order to prevent long-range missile attacks and artillery strikes because they're not going to allow a situation to pertain in the future as has pertained in Donetsk uh, city uh, uh, where every day, and my friends are there, and a good friend of mine, Steve Sweeney, is there right now, every day the, uh, the city is getting indiscriminately hit with grad rockets and NATO artillery shells. So the reality of this thing is that you, you could cynically suggest that Ukraine is agreeing to fire and the Americans are agreeing to provide them for two reasons. Number one, it all got left. And number two is that they really kind of recognize that this will be left as Russia's problem because it's highly unlikely, uh, as I said in, in my tweet, actually, that uh, that uh, Ukrainians will have to advance through these things should they succeed to do what they're going to do, which they're not going to do. And they'll also have to be pushed back through them. So the reality is potentially, and this is just you know maybe as an observation of my own, that uh, the uh, Ukrainians believe that this territory is lost. They actually do believe that, and that it will be Russia's problem to demine it or to, uh, to deal with it afterwards. Certainly, and there will be plenty of concern trolling from any number of disarmament campaigns funded by just the right sort of people about how Russia's senseless mm. war caused this, never mind who actually supplied the cluster munitions, and never mind who it was that in the summer of 2022 decided to look the other way while the VSU spent artillery ammunition. It complained it didn't have shelling downtown Donetsk, including firing its own stock of Soviet cluster munitions that scatter these little petal mines, which I yeah. took me aback. Took me aback because I think anybody who's seen the joint Russian-Ukrainian film from 2005, Nine Company, says they actually discuss how these munitions were used in Afghanistan by the Soviet army. And the movie doesn't say, well, because the Soviet army's doing it, it's cool. It says we're doing this mostly. It blows up goats and kids, and it's evil. Yeah, yeah, they're a very pernicious weapon, um, of course, and I, we've seen the results of that in Donbass. Uh, my friend, again, Steve, he's down there now, he's been down there for the last couple of months, and, you know, he's been trying to raise money for a kid who's lost his leg as a result of one of these, you know, and I was in, I've been in Belgorod and Shebek, and I've seen what these, what NATO artillery can do to just ordinary houses, shops, people's lives. I've, I've sat I'm with these people, and I, I and I, I also finished my talk at the UN by, you know, telling the delegates that NATO weapons are being used against civilians, and I've seen that, and that it was incumbent on me to tell them to do what they can in their own countries, even if they won't overtly say it, to end the war, to, to end this war. And I suggested that it was now for London or Washington and Washington 
to decide whether this war ends on the battlefield or around the negotiating table. It's gonna it's gonna be one or the other. But you know, I, I'm living in Russia now, and I, I, you know, of course, there's differences in opinion about the war. But I think regarding the the reality of the outcome, it's only hardening here as to uh, the reality that, you know, the, this threat cannot be let pertain, it can't be let uh, persist, that there's going to have to be a peace which guarantees Russia's security. Everyone's talking about Ukrainian security concerns, right? The ones that really matter are going to be Russia's security concerns. What is Russia going to allow? Because Russia is winning the war. I mean, the delusion, the, the, the scale of the delusion of the Western media, particularly BBC, CNN, is remarkable. I mean, I watch it every day because I, I like having high blood pressure. I turn it on every day to watch the, the mastery of delusion, the, the uh, deception by omission from the BBC. They're very, very good at it. And, you know, when I hear people like, uh, you know, uh, John Simpson, saying, you know, we're winning. What is Ukraine going to do when they win? I mean, it's just insane. I mean, these defenses in southern Ukraine or on Zaporizhia, these lines, these are exceptionally, they're impermeable. They can't be breached by anything that NATO has or Ukraine. And again, what I said to open my speech in the UN, uh, in the Security Council, was the following. I said, what began as NATO supporting a Ukrainian army is now a Ukrainian state supporting a NATO army because with, with ever-dwindling uh, manpower and, and, you know, ridiculously uh, uh, unviable armor and tanks. I mean, as I said, most of, these, uh, most of this equipment uh, released the leopards. These leopards are geriatric leopards. They're, a lot of them are 30 years old. They're, the, uh, they, they're too heavy for the Ukrainian step. They sink. Uh, you know, they're, they're too big a target for the Soviet anti-armor system, the Cornet, the M, the, these new systems, the K-52 attack helicopters are just eating them alive, literally. And But this now, of course, is millions. What do we do next? You know, the West is out of options. Russia has demilitarized NATO to a great extent regarding ammunition. It gives me infantry alike, but... You need ammunition, and we've, this has been proven to become a, an, a, an infantry war and an artillery war, and the whole Russian military doctrine is based on artillery. Uh, the, the Soviet Union, remember, spent nearly half a century, essentially, you know, preparing for a war with the West. Not a war of aggression, but maybe a war of defense. I mean, you could, you could argue that all day. Whereas uh, it, it accumulated vast stocks of artillery. Uh, ammunition, huge stocks of this very robust, uh, long-range uh, and short-range artillery, uh, and it's shown that this this other myth, this uh, sort of think tank fantasy that Russia is running out of missiles, we've gone about that, haven't we? What happened to that? What to Russia running out of uh, cruise missiles, running out of uh, artillery shells? It's just fantasy, and. You could ask any of the poor, unfortunate territorial defence infantrymen who've had two weeks training in the UK uh, and are now sitting in a foxhole somewhere getting hammered by uh, you know, these uh, Soviet-era uh, artillery barrages. They will tell you very quickly that this war is unwinnable. But that doesn't transmit, as you say, to the NATO command because, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I recently read, uh, you know, uh, 
a quote that you know, people just don't want to see the delusion because it challenges the reality that they're in. I think there's a very deep state of delusion at the political level. I think it, at a military level in, in uh, Europe, and I know some people uh, in that space, and they tell me that the only adults in the room right now are the senior military commanders in some of the NATO countries saying, look, guys, we, we couldn't win this war tomorrow if we started it with Russia. Forget about starting one with China. I mean, we just would not be able to win, win, win this conflict. We don't have the resources. I think all of the factories in Europe can manufacture a couple of hundred thousand artillery shells a year. Russia has whole cities that manufacture nothing but artillery and armor. With Tula, I was in Tula fairly recently on my way into, down to the south. And this is a city that was created in Soviet times to make artillery shells and bullets, essentially. And that's all it does. And Russia has 2 million people working in its arms industry now, 2 million people working. And they work hard and they produce very robust, uh, very, uh, what's the word, efficient systems. You know, and this reality seems to be lost on NATO. Everything they predicted has fallen on its ass, this economic econo-cultural war on Russia has failed in the most abject way. I met a very senior uh, business person actually last night. I had uh, a bit of lunch and then we had a, had a drink. Uh, there is a, a huge buoyed mood here in the internal markets in Russia around industry where Western companies have pulled out. There's a lot of innovation in technology. There's a very positive mood in it entirely. Uh, about that. And the indigenous arms industry, which is spinning up to a war from, you know, Russia moves slowly, but when it gets going, momentum is, is vast, it's huge. And people here are also, I think now, um, not comfortable, not, nobody's ever comfortable with war. Uh, and if there's a people alive on earth who know war and know the horrors of war, it's going to be the Russian people who lost you know, seven people here, and it's uh, it's grand. These are tough people. They're very tough people, and they're beginning to understand that this war will have to be settled. Uh, I don't know if they consider it a victory, even because Ukraine's still seen here as a brotherly nation. They see Ukraine as a Slavic. Uh, 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 it's a family row, for want of a better term. And there's still, you know, deep sadness at the fact that this has occurred. So, you know, I think that the levels of delusion in the West, and I suppose that would bring you to, to, to the NATO summit, the levels of delusion are, are absolutely remarkable. But what is the alternative for NATO? And as I said uh, at, in, in my speech, and I think this might have annoyed them, uh, I said the reality is that uh, NATO cannot allow or must try to prevent a Russian military victory in Ukraine because a Russian military victory in Ukraine uh, means the end of NATO. It, it doesn't mean that it will, they will immediately fold NATO, of course it doesn't, but it means basically why would any country want to be in NATO? What could NATO do for Ukraine? What did NATO do for Georgia? You know, NATO can fight wars against, uh, you know, uh, guerrillas or third rate you know, uh, Iraqi uh, conscripts, of course they can. It's like shooting fish in a But they're defeated by the Taliban is the guerrilla conflict, which was 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 geo-strategy in, in, in true geostrategic warfare, in that they couldn't get into the mountains to defeat them. So this was a remarkable uh, uh, conflict in itself for another day, maybe. But the reality is now that Russia 
is an advanced economy, despite what they tell you in the West. Or the Russian GDP is less than Texas or California. But what does Russia make? Russia makes T90M tanks. Russia makes satellites. Russia makes the best anti-armor system on Earth, probably, the, the Cornet M right now. It's, it's vaporizing everything NATO has. Yet that's why the Challenger tank hasn't been seen. And that's why the Abrams hasn't been seen, because one advertisement you don't want to give to your potential market is burning tanks. I mean, I don't know who'd want to buy a Leopard right now. I mean, it's not looking too good. The advertising campaign ain't going too well. And this whole uh, using Ukraine as a laboratory for Western weapons, which is absolutely most certainly going on, uh, uh, is also another cynical element to this. Why is this war still going on? Why is this war is over, uh, we can't have any presidential elections? So what's the impetus and, uh, you know, um, <laughs> why would he want to have to end this war? Who does Zelensky become if there's peace? You have to actually do some real work. You have to actually have to become a politician, not just a fantasist uh, comedian dressed in a green uh, suit, uh, trotting around Europe, uh, uh, you know, being a rock star, because that's what he is uh, to a lot of people. So the realities of the end of the war are so unpalatable for NATO, for the military industrial complex, who are already concerned uh, uh, about the way this thing has gone, of course, uh, is, is so unpalatable and unbelievable. It's informing the political reality, which is we just have to keep it going, hoping something else happens. And the danger is the big distraction that could end Ukraine, just like the big distraction that ended COVID, uh, was a war. So where would we have that war potentially? In China, potentially, let's shift the focus into Taiwan. Who knows where the weather, I don't know. But so, so this is the delusion of the Western hegemonic war machine. Uh, it tends to skip, like the Americans still had sand in their boots after being chased out, out of Afghanistan when they embarked on this insane proxy war with Russia. And who's to say that they won't do the same and uh, uh, jump towards... Um, we appear to have lost you there for a bit, uh, but I think that the point is very well made. And you also called Zelensky a rock star. Well, looking at that photo that we referenced from the NATO summit where he's standing there glowering while his wife holds hands with someone else and everybody else is talking to everybody but him and is dressed nicely, whereas he kind of looks uh -huh. like he arrived from some sort of bad work casual event where he hasn't slept or bathed in two days. Um I would say that perhaps his <laughs> rock star luster is beginning to fade a bit, but uh, perhaps there's more than meets the eye. But what do you make of uh, that much touted, vaunted thing where instead of NATO giving security guarantees, it's going to be the G7 and individual nations from that at that, which will at some time in the future give security guarantees. And essentially, yeah. it was a restatement of we're going to keep doing what we are doing without anything new, really, for Ukraine. What was up with that, and yeah. especially the Ukrainian outbursts? Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting, this idea that you would shift uh, guarantee um, sort of um, conduit about any deals done with Ukraine would be done by individual countries. If you look at NATO, the, the whole basis for NATO is collective defense, right? So NATO was established uh, in 49, I think, as a collective defense pact 
for the North Atlantic. I just need the clues in the name. So basically what NATO has now accepted and agreed uh, in the last three days is that we are no longer going to collectively uh, uh, agree to defend anybody, prospective uh, members or incoming members. So they said it'll be up to individual countries and the G7. G7 isn't a cohesive uh, uh, pact or alliance. There's no um, G7 charter which is signed. You don't become a member and have obligations economically or militarily to that. So that's a an acceptance that NATO is important now. And this also informs the other reality. Is uh, uh, Erdogan going to dispatch uh, a couple of brigades of Turkish paratroopers into Estonia if there was an incursion by Russia on the basis of the uh, significant minority of uh, Russian-speaking, ethnic Russians there being uh, uh, increasingly oppressed as they are in many, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, uh, Poland, etc. So the reality of NATO uh, is this, okay? It's a club. It's a golf club. It's a club where we train and we drink and we eat and we have, you know, we have parties and we never don't really play that much golf, okay? But these guys are turning up saying, you need to come and play golf now. No, no, thanks. We don't really want, we, we're here for the party. NATO is a machine that creates huge markets for the military industrial complex. And who is the beneficiary of that? It's the United States. Who is the main uh, uh, peddler of the fear narrative which requires countries to be in NATO and spend a significant chunk of their GDP, particularly countries from the post-Soviet sphere who have underdeveloped economies and high levels of corruption and uh, poor infrastructure. But NATO wants you to spend, you know, I think 4% of your GDP, it might be less now, I'm not sure, on, on defence. Even Ireland now is sort of flirting with this deluded idea that Russia in some way eyes uh, Ireland as some sort of strategic jump-off point uh, for the Atlantic cables. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fancy, you know. I mean, most people in Russia don't even know where Ireland is, and I know that because I spend a lot of time talking about it, explaining <laughs> oh, on. where my oh, putrid come. little country is, you know. Uh, they, no, you know, so. we, we do know that. Don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that. We do know where Ireland is, but we, I have to say we are definitely not planning to take over. I'm sorry to all of our Irish But that's listeners. what you said. That's what you said about Ukraine. <laughs> um that's what right. they say to me but that's what they right. said about ukraine i'm going my god i don't even want to go to ireland and i'm but irish most people i know who are irish want to get off the island nobody <laughs> wants to come if we could do a deal where we could sell ireland to the russians most people would say fuck it sell it that's okay, right okay. You know? well make make an offer we'll consider i'm just kidding but <laughs> you know as as a russian what you said about the Eastern European countries, it's actually very funny because I sometimes when people uh, talk to me, like I talk to some people from Eastern Europe, I talk to like to some Polish people, and half of them seem to live in the sphere of us invading them. And I'm like, I there is literally no time in my day when I or anyone I know thinks about this in those terms. Mm. It's a ludicrous idea. And the other thing is that this Russian empire thing, and this is a good forum to talk about this, if I may, this idea that you support the Russian uh, imperial fascist, uh, that's not the fascist idiocy, that's insane. But this imperial idea that Russia wants to take over Lithuania, 
Poland, Latvia, Estonia, you know, but it decided to tackle the biggest army, grand land army in Europe instead. I mean, if Russia had imperial, uh, you know, uh, designs, it would have just walked into the Balkans via Kaliningrad. It could have just took them over. Nobody's going to war over Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Nobody. Not even the Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians. Nobody's going to war over these guys. Okay? <laughs> Russia doesn't want it. Russia is but, a continent. You know, it's, it, it, the idea that Russia needs, needs more land, it's just like fucking, you know, it's like saying Hunter Biden needs, you know, uh, more cocaine. We probably have plenty, you know? It's just insane. What? It, it really is. But also, if you think about it, if you look at the USSR times, uh, the Baltic states, they kind of were made this, I guess, an example of what the Soviet lifestyle would be. There was so much poured into them compared to the Russian regions. Yeah. And so literally, a Baltic state to a Russia, not to mention the territory, but literally, it is not worth it. I, I hate to sound like it. <laughs> like a jerk maybe but seriously they have no resources they literally have nothing of value to go to war over which is something that i try to yeah. convey to people in the nicest way possible that even if we look at it just from the very you know very practical standpoint there is no point uh, in russia trying to get those lands yeah but i mean there's no strategic use of them either the only reason they, they're worried about it is because they joined NATO, probably. I mean, I mean, the reality is that, you know, Europe is in decline. It's in decline economically. And it's basically signed itself up for a slow death, the death of a thousand foots, because it's now sold its sovereignty, its economic sovereignty, and its geostrategic sovereignty to the United States. It, you know, we all know who blew up the Nord Stream. It's a very, I mean, we all know why. We don't go into the Nord Stream you know, sever uh, uh, European, Europe's, you know, uh, engine of production, its heavy industry, its automotive industry, its engineering capabilities in Germany and Italy from cheap Russian energy. And that's how you cripple Europe. That's how you make it a vassal economically. And it's all about the money. This is what the United States has done. They've done it quite masterfully. They used the cover of this war to decapitate the ca capability of Europe for any economic growth now. There's also a tidal wave of um, uh, um, uh, immigration, which is very difficult when economies tank and Europe, I believe, is the next cycle for Europe will be a significant slowdown in the economy, maybe from a colder winter next year, a prolonged war. If war with China comes or even a limited military conflict, the financial markets will suffer and everything will switch into these polarized markets of the United States or uh, the yuan, whatever, and Europe will be left on its ass. It won't have any cheap Russian gas left. Uh, why, you know, okay, we'll, we'll open it again. But this is the reality that Europe has done. So this sort of catalyst of this proxy war against Ukraine, I think it's actually spun out of control. I think these sort of uh, National Endowment for Democracy crack acts uh, who operate the State Department in uh, in the U.S., I think they miscarried. They say, you know, the, the favorite one on the teleprompter is, Russia has miscalculated. It strategically made a strategic mistake. Well, if you call demilitarizing NATO, because that's what's happened. They wouldn't be sending 30-year-old cluster munitions to 
its proxy. Uh, there wouldn't be a quarter million Ukrainian men under the ground uh, dead, which is I'm hearing now uh, as a reasonable estimate of dead. And there wouldn't be, you know, uh, you know, for example, in Ireland, there's, you know, uh, we're heading for like one or two percent of the population is now Ukrainian. Uh, we've also got this migrant tidal wave hitting Europe, which is incredibly uh, divisive in sort of liberal societies because uh, you know, your liberalism tells you now everyone needs to get a house, but we've no house for the indigenous people. So you're going to have these huge fractious situations. Most of these migrants come are from are the sediment, if you like, sorry for the term, from post-colonial wars in Africa, American he hegemony in the Middle East, uh, beginning in uh, Iran, in the mid-1950s when Mohammed Mossadegh was deposed, where the British, French and the Americans, you know, combined to destroy uh, a socialist Iran, which was the explosive charge that lived the Middle East. All of these people from Libya, Syria, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, are all the uh, sort of, they're all running from something, but running from the reality of this post-colonial world towards Europe, where they think they can make a living. And 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 in my view, they should be able to do that. So Europe has a huge amount of problems. Russia, Russia, in my view, has huge internal capability. It's got vast natural resources. People are nervous. Nobody wants a war, of course. People are divided. You know, they openly talk about it here. No, but I do sense now, after being here probably six months uh, on this trip that people are getting more resigned to the fact that this has to be done. It has to be ended. And I'm hearing more people talk in that way. The idea of sort of Russia sitting down around a table with NATO or the representatives of NATO to do a deal that could brood uh, with is becoming less and less likely. But who knows? But that's the sort of picture I see. And the NATO summit is as I mentioned, the idea that's trying to shift the responsibility. It's like, talk to your mother. This is what NATO is saying. The kids coming and saying, the guy up the road is bullying me. What am I going to do? Talk to your mother. Go to the G7. They'll mind you. I'm not going up there to get the crap kicked out of me, okay? Despite the fact that the father told the son, this time Zelensky, previously Sakish, Billy, you know, Go up there, see that big Russian at the bar, go up and smack him in the back of the head, okay? And when he turns around, we're all going to pile in. Saakashvili did it. Look at him. Look at him physically. Look at him politically. Look at him in every way now. He was sucked up this primrose path, path as John Mearsheimer, this, the most, you know, one of the greatest realist, uh, you know, uh, geopolitical analysts alive today, painted this picture so beautifully and so, uh, you know, inimitably uh, so many times and it's happened. Now Zelensky you know, in that vacuum. If you look at Vietnam, Indian Phu, the, the corrupt uh, proxy leader that the Americans sucked into the conflict, accelerating the aid into Vietnam and before they eventually uh, you know, uh, colluded with the, uh, Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese military to kill him. And they denied this for decades. But when the papers came out, it was the CIA and the American government had him whacked. So Zelensky's either going to go under a bus or start to uh, start to become a prior. And if there's a sniff of that right now, as as uh, that was the rock star comment, you know, you're only as good as your last album. People fade away. So Zelensky's looking a bit chubby now. He's looking a bit stale. 
And he's also being called ungrateful, which is quite insulting, you know. I don't remember Churchill calling Stalin ungrateful for asking for more lend lease to, to bring across Lake, Lake Ladoga to in the defense of, uh, you know, of uh, Leningrad. I don't remember that. This, these are statesmen. I don't, they didn't see these guys giggling over a cup of coffee while people, their people died in the Blitz or in the trenches on the uh, Eastern Front. These were serious warrior leaders who knew uh, what had to be done to defeat uh, Nazism. Okay, they, whatever you think about them, this guy is an actor and a comedian, and he's an actor and a comedian paid by a, a, an utterly incompetent, demented, dishonest, and corrupt American president. So these are the people in charge, and it's pretty scary. So I just hope that the the, the military people and the permanent government. Uh, in the States and in the UK particularly are going to sort of wise up now and say, where can this go? Where can it go? Let's do some actual strategic planning. Where can this go? Is Russia going to accept a, a defeat in Ukraine, a military defeat? In my view, it's absolutely impossible for Russia to accept that. Vladimir Putin does not want the legacy of, of a defeat. Uh, and I don't see him allowing that to happen. The Russian military doesn't. Two very powerful complexes in Russia. The Russian people, at least 60% of them, I would say, don't want that to happen. Nobody here wants to go back to the 90s where the West uh, picked over the corpse of the Soviet Union, raped the natural resources, uh, you know, fueled a very lawless period here while Western operations made trillions of dollars uh, ripping apart uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the skeletal remains of the Soviet Union. Nobody here is going to allow that to happen. It's just not going to happen, okay? And I've talked to some very serious people about this, though. So the delusion is very strong in the West. Their, their club is under threat. They're losing their proxy war. Their economy is under pressure. And worse than anything else, their economy in the West, in, 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 the, in the EU and NATO, which is the heartland of it, funded, of course, by the states, is under threat from their best friend, the Americans. And the Americans now want to start a fucking uh, row with the Chinese. Who suffers from that mostly? It would be Europe. So this is a bad wedding where everyone's drunk on one side of the family. And it's going to end badly, in my view. So it's time for them to get around the table and start saying, where can this go? And where do we want to send it? Because if that doesn't happen, you know, we could have a serious problem. Do you think that they even care? Because, I mean, judging by, like, their emotions and their mannerisms and the way they acted at the NATO summit they don't care like it feels like Zelensky cares obviously but like I think I think they do care I think listen here's the thing there's an awful lot of middle-aged white men who stand to lose an awful lot of money influence and legacy from this ending badly and sometimes you know you got to be pragmatic I think also, I think in the West and in the United States, for example, a presidential election coming up, uh, it's never a good to run an election during a war in the States. I think, you know, Nixon prolonged the Vietnam War so that he could get reelected. It was, uh, I think, Mark Damara, uh, his strategist, sort of, you know, colluded with him. Uh, thousands of American sides so that this war wouldn't end or the defeat wouldn't come on his watch. The same with Afghanistan. Biden said that, you know, it was all Trump's fault. But a State Department report uh, two weeks ago, which I did a report on here, you know, patently 
verified that Biden was complicit in the calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the defeat of the American military. So they have to become pragmatic now because the, the alternative is unthinkable. I mean, the alternative is a NATO uh, Russia uh, war. And remember, people in the NATO side and these uh, the deluded uh, NAFO NATO people, they believe that this conflict will be limited to NATO Russia. They forget that, uh, you know, NATO uh, Russia has allies. And, you know, could China be pulled into a, some, a conflict with Russia on a broader front or scale? Well, think about it. What would, what would be the first thing you would do, uh, you know, is when the fight breaks out in the bars, you grab the whisk, bottles of whiskey and you run out of the car park, you know, as we say in Ireland. So would China use the opportunity to take Taiwan while America's back was turned in a land war in Europe? It's just unthinkable. And there are too many middle-aged white men with too much money in the bank, too many investments, too many seats on too many boards, you know, to let that happen in my view. And I'm, I'm relying on their greed and uh, hopeful rearmament around Taiwan to pull them out of Ukraine uh, as they were pulled out of Afghanistan when they saw that the game was over. I don't think they're going to realize it to the last minute, but I think uh, a couple of Russian guards armies might have a say in that when this ludicrous assault against these fixed uh, defenses uh, is exhausted. And it's, in my view, it's it's very much heading in that direction. I believe that there will probably be, and the, the military, the strategic mind, and if you, you know, you read the stuff I read and you're looking at this on a, a sort of a, a whiteboard, the, the absolute uh, imperative now would be for Russia to engage in a counterattack and head along the Black Sea coast toward Odessa, towards Transnistria. That's my view. I don't know will they do it. I don't know if there's the political will to do it. Would it need more mobilization? I don't know. But that's what the sort of the encyclopedia would tell you you would have to do. Because you leave this sort of open sword, you allow this thing to, this the next chapter of this conflict to be fought by your kids and grandkids. I don't know. All right. Well, like a closing, like a nice little closing segue. Why do you think that Ukraine thought that they would be any different than Georgia? Um, yeah, I think I think you've got to remember. I think the ideology behind this whole Maidan thing was, you know, it was funded and accelerated by National Democracy Freedom House. It was hollowed out from the inside and very dangerous people were put on the stage with people like McCain and John McCain, uh, a repugnant, horrible little man, never saw a war he didn't want to be involved in. You know, a really unpleasant creature, Lindsey Graham. Sometimes the people who shout loudest, you know, get most of the, the airtime. And I think Ukraine to some degree uh, initially was seduced into this idea that it, it, it was a superior race. I mean, they've rewritten history in so many ways now, it's laughable. But I think this far right, particularly in economies and societies which are suffering terrible deprivation, and in post-Soviet Ukraine was exceptionally corrupt, exceptionally poor, exceptionally dysfunctional and dangerous place to be. So in these spaces, as Germany post-First World War, it's, it's a very fertile ground for radicalism. And you, you, you don't just need to be a radical. You need to be lucky, as even Hitler was and believed he was lucky. You know, If you want to shine like the sun, first you've got to burn like the sun. 
So this was the this firebrand ideology that the EU was going to be all things to us Ukrainians. We're going home. But this was a very small group, very vocal, with a very distinct heritage back to the OUN, the UPA, these banderists, terrorists, Nazis, uh, collaborators, who have even you know whitewashed that into some sort of noble nationalist freedom uh, movement. I think they had this disproportionate influence that everything was going to be fixed if we joined the EU, we got rid of Yanukovych, who was democratically elected. The Americans, of course, you know, they have no morality when they select their bedfellows when uh, the outcome is going to be damage or a strategic defeat on their enemy. So they would get into bed with the pedophiles association of uh, Hades if it meant uh, you know, damaging Russia or China's uh, interests globally. They will. Uh, they've shown that with with uh, ISIS, with their uh, collusion with Nazis. Their, what, what was it? Is Al Qaeda our friends? Right. Al Qaeda are our friends. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. <laughs> and, but but look, look, you know, who, you know, who became the chief police in uh, Eastern uh, East Germany? Or sorry, West Germany. It was uh, Paulus, the head of the Sixth Army that was captured uh, at the siege of Stalingrad. He became the chief of police. Uh, you know, the Marshall Plan was basically, uh, you know, pumping oxygen into this uh, Nazi cadaver to grow it, to build it as a wall against communism. So this project has been ongoing for decades. It's, it's nothing new. Operation Unthinkable, where the British and the Americans were, you know, actually considering colluding to strike 12 uh, Soviet cities with nuclear weapons, decapitate the Soviet re uh, regime and steal the resources of Russia. That, 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 those documents exist in the Q archive. And I suggest anyone who, who has any issue with anything I've said, go and search out the, the factual basis for everything I've said. So this is nothing new. So this is the terminus of a bad idea. And it doesn't mean that somebody can say on the Western side, well, this was a bad idea. Let's go and start another idea somewhere, like they did in Afghanistan, uh, and move on. I don't suggest for a second that they're even aware of how how bad they are at this stuff, at foreign policy. I don't suggest that they are, or they will be, but there will always be a selfish imperative which may save us from the ultimate uh, disaster. Why has Ukraine become this enthusiastic, uh, I actually called what's happening in Ukraine a, a vast assisted suicide program run by the CIA and MI6. And that's what I think it is. It's an assisted suicide program. I don't buy into all this replacement theory or trying to wipe out a generation or the idea that this war is based on a huge BlackRock uh, sort of investment scam. I don't buy into that. This is idiotic uh, foreign policy. This is uh, a vastly uh, funded and aggressive uh, US um, military-industrial complex, which the nexus of which into U.S. politics is so pernicious and incestuous, it's it's terrifying. This, these two uh, coalescing sort of uh, parasitic uh, organisms are hungry for fear. So you create fear around Russia, you create fear around Islam, you create fear around China. You, you, you find somebody to flood with weapons, then you get them to suck in the weapons from their surrounding countries while flooding them with fear. You replace the weapons in the surrounding countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Italy, uh, Germany, and you perpetuate this massive uh, profit machine, which sucks in 
uh, human beings and spits out vast profits for people like Lloyd Austin, the uh, American Secretary of Defense, who was a board member of Raytheon. Max Blumenthal took it apart like a lead set at the UN. He was absolutely masterful. And I'd suggest everybody listen to his speech, which was inc an incredible indictment of this grimy nexus between the military-industrial complex and, and American uh, political life. So I think Ukraine is now has become this enthusiastic uh, uh, sacrificial lamb for the West. But I think people are going to start to see that. I think in Georgia, they really believed that uh, because they were so close to Russia, they would be far, far more important, in my view. I think Saakashvili was an idiot as well. Uh, uh, but he was, in some ways, politically tuned in, whereas Zelensky is, uh, is just a vacuous, uh, dead-eyed... Uh, you know, Borg, really. He's just he's just terrifyingly uh, inept, in my view. He's just an actor. Well, the actor and the stage. And he was on that stage all alone. I think uh, that's quite a good note to end on. Uh, che, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing our insights. It was wonderful to have you again. I've learned quite a bit. I know our listeners will learn quite a bit listening to you. I would also like to take this opportunity to bring attention to a new feature that we've launched here at DD Geopolitics, our Substack. We have a dedicated team here, and we write articles for you. It's for free, but if you want to support us, the best way to do that is to subscribe to our Substack. Now, thank you all once again, and Che, thank you again, and thank you, uh, Chebu, thank you, Lydia.